This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Are you a country kid? How much do you reckon growing up in the bush affected your results at school? Like, would it surprise you if I told you country school students can be on average almost two years behind their peers in the city? Why is that? In a bit, we're going to talk to someone who's been looking into it and figure out how we can make schooling fairer for people, regardless of where you're growing up. Also, later, we're checking in with the young Aussies making it big on Broadway. If you're a bit of a theatre nerd, you're going to want to stay listening to that. First, though. Hack. Don't need to put money aside. I don't need to stress and take money out of savings. On Triple Jack. If the housing market has completely ruined you, (laughs) chances are you may have been forced to move back in with the family, right? Your parents, maybe even your grandparents. Multi-generational living is happening a lot in Australia, but it's not just because younger people are struggling. A lot of times, it's the older people also battling to keep the heaters on or to put food on the table. So more and more young Australians are moving back home to help their families make ends meet. Is this you? I'm interested. Why have you moved back home? If you do live with a grandparent particularly, how do you find it? Maybe you thought you wouldn't enjoy it, but you're loving it. Call in 1300 0555 You can message in as well, 0439 757 Shalala Madora has been speaking to some young Aussies with some pretty old housemates. Grandma gets me up for work in the morning with a cup of tea. We're very close. We're very close. And we always have been, regardless of the fact of us living together. And it just means now that we unwind at the end of the day together, start our mornings together. It's so clear that Isis and her grandma, Debbie, love the heck out of each other. We're very close. I was there when when she was born. I was the first one to hold her. So, like... She's my favourite grandchild. (laughs) In the middle of last year, Isis moved in with Debbie. It was meant to be a short-term thing. Grandma was going overseas and she needed someone to watch her dogs and to house sit. So I've done that a couple of times previously and this time I just stayed because (laughs) (laughs) it was nice. At 25, Isis has the same problem as so many young people we hear from. There are just no affordable rentals where she lives, in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. I don't know how many applications I put in. It was ridiculous. Meanwhile, Debbie was struggling with the cost of living alone in a big house. She had been renting rooms out to international students to make ends meet, but that dried up during COVID. Well, my husband died, yes. So I've been on my own now for nearly eight years. So and it's been very lonely and expensive when you're on your own. Debbie was struggling to pay for essentials like heating and electricity and was cutting back on the quality of food she was eating. She was worried that she'd have no choice but to sell the home she'd lived in since 1981 and move away from her family and friends. When Debbie went with Isis to look at a rental property, she came up with a plan. I think it was about 3.70 a week she was going to have to pay for one room. Mm. And I said to her, you know, you're welcome to live with me. It was a financial arrangement that suits them both. We We go halves on everything. Yeah. Then, you know, halves on the electricity, the gas, the water, everything. Yeah. It's a big help, isn't it? It's, Mm. it's, I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful that she's here. I'm happy that she's here. I think my standard of living is a little bit better. I've got the heating on now. So I moved back in with my mum about four years ago as I started to study again 
A while back, Brittany from Borloo, Perth, decided to change careers and become an Auslan interpreter. In that time, her mum's bills and mortgage repayments have gone up heaps. She's had to pick up a second job just to support the repayments on her mortgage with interest rates going up again. So when she finished studying earlier this year, Brittany decided to stay with her mum. I pay $200 a week in board uh, and that does include utilities, internet, um, all that sort of stuff as well. Having Brittany contribute to bills has given her mum peace of mind. Along with her picking up a new job and me staying there, it's definitely helped her at least keep her head above water as well. It's given Brittany peace of mind too, because if she had to pay commercial levels of rent, she'd have to give up on those little luxuries like haircuts, holidays and gym memberships. She'd have to cut back on more serious things too. I used to go quite regularly just for general checkups and blood tests and stuff, but since the Medicare rebate's been taken out a lot and there's not much bulk billing anymore, and you have to pay for blood tests now. It's just, it's too expensive to even go to get your health checked, which is really not good. But Brittany is really aware of the fact that not everyone can move in with their family members. So I'm quite privileged in having that really good relationship with my mum. So coming back home wasn't something that I um and dad about. I just went straight in because I know that she would always take me back if I ever came back home. And Isis agrees. She recognises how lucky she is to have such a special relationship with her gran. The arrangement has given them both the opportunity to spend time and money on each other. We save up our money over like three or so weeks and go get our nails done together. So just got them done. <laughs> when was Facebook? Wednesday. Tuesday. Tuesday. We did our nails on Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. And then we went ten minutes shopping after that. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Shalala Madora with that story. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I got married in July last year. Father-in-law passed away a month later and we moved in with my mother and brother-in-law. At the moment, causes a bit of stress and anxiety. Definitely puts a lot more pressure on the marriage. We didn't move to save money. We moved to support family, but it is starting to feel like we might need to move out in order to survive mentally. Yeah, it can be really stressful. But then we have another person saying, I live with my other old adult sisters and mum and we all pay the bills together. It works for us. And luckily, we get along really well. Look, let's get into this a bit more. With us is Dr. Edgar Liu from UNSW. He knows a lot about the social aspects of housing and urban life. He is with us now. Uh, Edgar, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. Do we know how common it is for Australians to be in these multi-generational homes, like living with parents or grandparents? From a statistics perspective, it's about one in every five people, so 20%. But if you look at it from a family household kind of perspective, it's roughly one every three families. So it's quite common. Okay. And what has your research told you about the reasons people are doing this? Is it just cost of living or is there a bunch of other stuff as well? It's usually quite mixed. So when we did ask our participants of why they did that, most of them give us multiple reasons why they did it. Um, but, you know, if you look at it overall, the most common, of course, was cost of living and finance. Um, and, you know, that encompasses a whole range of things from, you know, sharing bills or finding better value in sharing costs. Or, you know, like some of your previous stories, you know, someone was wanting to switch career and they, they may need to do that. 
Um, but, you know, otherwise there are lots of other reasons, such as, you know, your previous story about providing care to family members, whether it is an older relative or a young child. Are there cultural reasons as well? Like, is that something that we find that some cultures are more likely to embrace living with family for longer? We do find that, um, yeah. So there are certain cultures um, that would be more common. Uh, this this kind of arrangement would be more common. Um, you know, people from the Middle East, for example, or from Southeast Asia, where there, this, there has been longer kind of history of this happening. Uh, but, you know, thinking back... 50, 100 years ago, everyone lived like that. It's just that circumstances have changed in the last 50 years or so. I imagine there are a lot of benefits. Uh, Do you look at the social benefits for having different generations being around each other? We certainly did. Um, We asked people what they liked the best and what they didn't like you know, the most uh, in terms of that kind of arrangement, even though, as I said, most people did it for financial reasons, that wasn't one of the things that they liked the best. That was kind of well down the list. Um, what they liked the most was, again, like some of your stories, was the companionship that they have with each other. It's more just the fact that, you know, if you go home, then it's not completely empty. There's someone there that you can talk to if you wanted to talk to somebody. <laughs> Someone on the text line just now says, the worst year of my life was living with the in-laws for a year to save up for a house. That was not a positive experience. They were not happy for that companionship there. Another person on the text line says, it's not just about having the relationship. They need to have the space as well. That's a really interesting point I'm going to get to now. I'm speaking with Dr Edgar Liu from UNSW about the social aspects of housing and urban life, about multi-generational living. Edgar, what about the design? of our homes, does that impact how we live together with family? It certainly does. It certainly creates or at least adds to some of the challenges that we've just talked about. Um, it's not necessarily just about the size of the property. Like you said, it's about the design as well because a lot of our properties now are or have you know open plan living and most of the people who have you know endured lockdown would know that sitting around at the same dining table working from home and learning from home together there's just nowhere to hide you see and hear everything and so those kind of open plan design has kind of contributed to some of those kind of challenges right that's interesting so maybe we should be designing things differently to make it easier to live with people from of different ages different generations or oh, at least, you know, some, some kind of flexibility in terms of those kind of things. So whether it's a sliding door, uh, whether there is an actual separate space, a lot of councils now actually allow for granny flats and those actually help a lot. There's a slight physical separation without being too far from each other. Um, and, you know, just at least a door that you can close if you need to go somewhere. Yeah, you need a door. Come on, you need at least a door. <laughs> Do you think, um, Dr Edgar, we'll be seeing more of this going forward, this multi-generational living? Is it something uh, that we're noticing around the world as well? Or do you think it will start to peter off? Uh, it probably will continue for a while. I mean, it certainly has been continuing for quite a long time here in Australia already. So there's no reason why it wouldn't. Um, and, you know, with the cost of living crisis that we're having at the moment, we saw similar experiences overseas. Um, going back to the global financial crisis, for example, both in the US and the UK reported, you know, doubling the speed of growth of this kind of arrangement in the first couple of years before it, it like you said, peters back down to a normal kind of level. Um, and so people do make these kind of decisions actively, whether it is out of necessity or just a desire that they want to do it this way. 
Um, but yeah, we will see this continue happening for a whole range of different reasons. Oh, it's definitely interesting stuff and we're hearing from people who are doing it right now. Mixed experiences, as you would expect. Dr Edgar Liu from UNSW, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack. I can't sit still for more than two minutes at school. For me to come out to a farm and get hands-on stuff, I thrive. On Triple Jack. You know, there's lots of advantages about going to school in the country. It can be a really happy experience. Everyone knows each other. You've got big grounds, big ovals. If you're into ag, usually a great ag farm on the country high school plot. We've known for years, though, that country students, those in rural and remote areas, are falling behind their peers in the city. And for ages, everyone's just thought this is a socioeconomic thing. But there's actually a lot more to it. And there's a bit of research going on into it now. If you went to school in the country, I want to know, do you compare yourself with the results that your friends in the city got? Do you feel like you missed out, that the quality wasn't there? Or do you find the opposite? You think you got a much better education outside the city? Message in 0439757555. Well, Dr Philip Roberts is an Associate Professor in Rural Education at the University of Canberra. He has been looking into how students in rural and regional areas compared to students in the city, and he's with me now. G'day, Philip. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Good afternoon, Dave. Great to be here. A lot of research comparing city and country students is based on primary school results, but you've been crunching the numbers with high school results. What have you found? Thanks, Dave. That's right. We've looked at the HSC results in English and Maths in New South Wales. And what we found is when we control for all those factors that we usually associate with different levels of achievement, that our rural kids are unfortunately still performing less well than our city kids. I think the reasons you mentioned earlier have become a big part of that. Yeah. How drastic is the difference? Look, It's not huge, but it's significant. So it's about 3% in the English subjects and it's about 6% in the more advanced uh, mathematics subject. But, you know, that's still a significant percentage when we look at that at a a population level and in terms of, you know, how high stakes these things are in particular New South Wales nowadays and where we have high school exams in the year 12. How much does socioeconomic status have to do with it? Well, in our study, we've basically found that uh, there's no relationship or we've controlled for socioeconomic status. So what that means is we've taken students that have the same profile in the city, the inner regional areas and the outer regional areas, and they go to the same sort of schools, the same social groups, and we've controlled for all of those variables and still found that those differences exist. So we're trying, we're trying to test that long discussed notion that you mentioned in your introduction there that we often associate this with socioeconomic status and we've shown that there is more than that happening here so what's certainly significant but there's more so what are the main things that are leading to this do you reckon look the sort of work we've been working with are some of those opportunities that you mentioned there that we talk about opportunities for kids in terms of agriculture uh, working practically, living in an environment that is enriching in terms of the natural environment or the opportunities that they have. And a lot of those things are not represented in the HSC exams and what the kids do in those final final year exams. A lot of those, the novels they will read are based in the cities or European cultures, all of the maths examples will be more general, where a lot of these kids are used to working with you know, examples closer to their real world and the uh, employment opportunities but their everyday life, out and about riding um, dirt bikes, quad bikes, 
reading literature that's more related to their environment, all that sort of stuff, which we don't include in the exams. That's really interesting. So do you think that we would be better off tailoring education to suit students if they are in a different location? If you are in the country, maybe um, you're not tested the exact same way as a person in the city. Exactly. That's what we would be talking about. We used to do things like that and have programs about 15 years ago where we helped teachers make those connections more meaningful to kids and make those links. But we sort of got rid of them as we've gone more and more towards this standardised, high-stakes environment. And what it means is everyone does the same test in the same way on the same day. Now, in some jurisdictions, it's not done like that. In the ACT, for instance, there is no end-of-school exam. It's all school-based moderation, similar models in South Australia. So the ways we can do this that enable for that background experience and more of the lived world experience of what the kids are used to, to be included in assessments, but then we can moderate that and balance it out so that it's equal in terms of the skills they're trying to assess. We've got some messages coming through now, quite a few messages, actually, Dr. Philip Roberts. I, I imagine you're not surprised by that. We've got someone who says, I was a country school kid. I was top of the class, straight A student. I got a huge shock when my year 12 moderated results came back. I couldn't get into any of the uni courses I expected to. And it wasn't until this point that I realised what a disadvantage I was at going to a small country school. Um, absolutely. That was the same for me. I actually went to a tiny school. It was kindergarten to year 12 in the country, only like a couple of hundred people, um, uh, in the whole school, primary and high school. And one of the big issues that I had, Philip, was two of my HSC subjects I had to do by correspondence. And I imagine there's a lot of country kids that had to do this as well. Is that affecting people? Look, Yes and no. I, I can't directly answer that because we've made sure that the ones we've included in our study are doing it in their schools in the country. So we've tried to, to mediate that effect. But that certainly is an impact that a lot of students are doing stuff online, which you know is mildly ironic in the um, COVID period where we've been doing this for 30 years online. But in COVID, we suddenly started talking about the best place for a child to learn is in the classroom. So there's some strange things that happen in, the, in this space. But um, look, it really comes down to that experience that kids have. How do we make sure that the world that they're used to living in actually has a place? Because otherwise they've got to learn concepts and approaches that are removed from their everyday experiences. So I think that, that, that first text you mentioned is sort of the heartbreaking text and some of the reasons why we do this sort of work, isn't it? Because you, know, you shouldn't feel as though you are at a disadvantage because you go to a country school. If you put a country kid or city kid in a country school, they're going to be equally disadvantaged by the great opportunities that kids have in our rural areas, but they're not used to those as their everyday experience. So it comes down to what we think the everyday experience is and what's normal, which unfortunately at the moment isn't the rural experience. You're listening to Hackham, Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Roberts from the University of Canberra about rural education and how uh, country kids are faring in comparison to their city counterparts. On the text line, someone says, I often dream of how much higher my ATAR could have been if I was in Sydney and not Goulburn in regional New South Wales. Another person says, hi, Dave. I went to school in regional Victoria, took two buses to get there. I had to get up at 6.30 every day, wouldn't get home until just before five o'clock. And it wasn't until I went to boarding school in my final two years that I realised how much that long journey was affecting my school progress. Another person, I saw both as I went to a rural public school and a private school in Ballarat. Both had their advantages. And someone else says... 
you can't compare the two schooling experiences. Apart from the curriculum, there are so many different learned things between city and country kids. A lot of people also mentioning teachers as well, which is really interesting. And I, I remember my school... Uh, experience, Dr. Philip Roberts. And I remember the teachers at my school were either really young, like straight out of uni, just learning, or they were really old and had been teaching literally since the 1950s or 60s. <laughs> so that, that's, is that part of it as well? The teaching, uh, you know, the, the quality of teachers we've got? Look, there, there are these things on the fringes that, that we, we know about. And again, for this particular study, we, we don't know that particular detail, but they're certainly important factors. Um, we do have a lot of our uh, rural schools are, are suffering the worst with the staffing shortages at the moment, particularly in subject areas and getting teachers into those key subject areas. Um, things like maths and science in particular is a real problem. Um, so they don't want to work in the communities because it's not where they're from themselves. Um, but in terms of the quality, there's some interesting work that came out of Newcastle Uni uh, where they've been doing large-scale work. And they actually found no difference in the quality of teachers in less advantaged schools, which included these schools, and uh, and more advantaged schools. So not necessarily the case, but certainly access um, to specifically trained teachers can be a real a real dilemma. Yeah. But I think I think your text comment there um, about we can't compare the two because there's so many differences. I think that, again, is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Yeah. We, we do compare them inherently by the system. So surely in this day and age, we can do things better than we do with the system we invented like 50 years ago. Exactly. We need to be looking into this. And I should stress um, all of my really young teachers and all of my really old teachers were all incredible. I had a great school experience and I definitely wouldn't change it for anything. Dr. Philip Roberts from the Uni of Canberra, thank you very much for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Got someone on the text line saying, yeah, I went to a rural high school, stayed up till two doing maths some nights, got a 98.35 ATAR, ability to attract good teachers as well as the general attitudes of students are big contributors. Hack. We're young, rich and full of sugar. What do we do? Let's go crazy Broadway style! On Triple J. Yeah, theatre kids, drama nerds, your time has come. When I say Broadway, what do you think of? I mean, New York, obviously. And you're probably not thinking of Australia, but maybe you should be because right now there's actually a big surge in Aussie performers on Broadway in more than a dozen of the big shows. And we could see a whole lot more with changes making auditions and travel more accessible than before. Well, Hack's ultimate drama kid, Nathan Nigadula, has been speaking to some Australians who are blowing up Broadway. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. Tonight, we're talking Broadway musicals. Hit it. Hello, my name is Elder Price, and I would like to share with you the most amazing... Now, I normally wouldn't do this, but that last bit was actually me singing. I love Broadway. Like many of my acting friends have this grand, romanticised idea about the New York theatre scene. Would I ever want to perform on Broadway? I mean, that was definitely the dream. But some Aussies do get there. Not just as actors, but also musicians, dance choreographers, and even directors. This has to be the most amount of Australians that have been involved in Broadway shows, both on stage and off, ever at one time. That's Amelia Cormack. 
She's currently performing in Hades Town, an award-winning musical based on the Greek tragedy of Orpheus. I was lucky enough to talk to her about how she got from Sydney stages to Broadway. Basically, in 2010, I turned 30 and I look at my life and my career and was like, this is not where I thought I would be by now. And I have this dream of Broadway. And if I don't go now, it won't happen. Everyone that's moved here has moved here to be at the top of their field, whether that's finance or food or fashion or art or, or theater, whatever it is, you move here because you think you can be amongst the best. It wasn't an easy road. Even getting to audition for Broadway takes a lot of time. If you want to live in New York and you want to work on Broadway, you have to be a member of equity and you can't be a member of equity unless you're a permanent resident. The way the union works here is it's much, it's much, much harder to get into. You have to really earn your place. So if you didn't pick that up, equity is an actor's union and there are strict rules around performers getting the right to work on Broadway. They all had to meet requirements like having 50 weeks of experience performing in live shows, paying hundreds of dollars in application fees and even being an American citizen. What you're basically saying to the American Immigration Service is, I am the best at what I do in my country and if you let me be here, I will make this industry better because I am an alien of extraordinary ability. They need that yeah. like on a badge. That's so sick. I know, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. But as a green card holder, all I had to do was walk into the equity building with my green card and a letter from Australian Equity saying that I had worked for more than 12 months and I was able to be equity straight away. For Eddie Gray, he experienced working on the Book of Mormon here in Australia before moving over. Back in the day, you had to have a green card. So I was like, I really want a green card. I went to this one attorney who became highly recommended and he was like, there's no way you're going to get a green card. And I was kind of like, oh, I, I think I can. And so I basically then met with other attorneys and I did. And that was a lot of work. It took like two years. Like I was doing Wicked at the time. And like, I remember saying like my day job was putting together my green card application it was that much. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun. Wandering free, wish I could be part of that world. Are there many differences between the Aussie and American theatre scene? Yeah, it's a bit of a different um, culture because, and again, this is like I'm an outsider being Australian coming to New York to do it, but there is this lovely sense of pride that people have and I don't think it's arrogance or boastfulness people are like wow I'm I'm on Broadway and that's a really nice feeling because when you for Americans they grow up being like that is the pinnacle when I meet people that are moving here that's the first thing I say to them is like get rid of the self-deprecation it does not work because especially in New York like I had to constantly tell myself I was shit and then when I actually got to take that off and go no I'm really good at my job it was so freeing and it's actually much more conducive to creativity because the way that people are here is like, oh, you're good, I'm good, do you want to make a thing? Since COVID, the Actors' Union has eased its entry requirements significantly, making it easier than ever for people to get a Broadway audition. For aspiring Aussie actors, the Broadway dream is now more accessible than ever. When I was coming up, it was like, try to be like everyone else. And I really think your best leverage is like yourself and people do not know what they want until you give it to them work out who you are think about what you like about yourself and then magnify that hack on triple j nathan nigadula with that story 
beautiful to hear the big successes of everyone. Doing the old razzle-dazzle on Broadway. <laughs> See, I sound like Lucy Smith then. I feel like I sounded a bit like Lucy Smith there. She loves to do that. Hey, we're still getting a whole bunch of messages in from our story on rural education. It's a big one that got you talking about the differences we see in country school students' uh, results and those uh, in the city. And there's still this big disparity, right? I've got someone here that says, in the city, you compete against thousands of people. In my country school, I felt like I was competing against three peers. It's true. When you come first in your subject in the HSC, there's only one or two people in the class. Another person says, I went to school in a regional area and we had an excursion to Sydney and saw HSC markers who would write the HSC exam and would teach at the private high schools. Life experience like riding a quad bike or having extra space has nothing to do with our education, but having access to exam writers and well-experienced teachers is more valuable to students. That's someone's opinion. And another person says, who are the most happy though? Nature is proven to build endorphins. Why are we testing for an ATAR and doing the work of universities at school? Look, lots of opinions there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.